Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Colin Seary, an Australian Health Sector Executive and the current CEO at Lifeline Australia. Colin has worked with the National Safety Council of Australia and the Hospital Benefits Association. He's a passionate AFL and Sydney Swans supporter, spending seven years with the Sydney Swans Football Club. And Dr Christy Goodwin, one of Australia's leading digital wellbeing and productivity speakers, helping organisations and individuals understand the impact of technology and what it's having on their employees regarding their mental and physical health. She's the author of Raising Your Child in a Digital World and a thought leader in managing digital health. Let's get started. And welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Colin Seary. Welcome, Colin. Great. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for being on the show. And Dr. Christy Goodwin. Welcome, Dr. Christy. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. I want to start um, with, with you, Cole, because um, one of the underlying uh, factors, I suppose, or themes with Lunch with Lee is that a lot of our audiences is, are men. Yeah. Um, we tend to self-diagnose quite a bit. We put our heads in the sand. We think, you know, she'll be right. And growing up, I had at least three or four mates commit suicide, yep. which is really, really tough at a young age, like three from one school. Um, and I know back then, I don't know if the numbers have changed, but we had one of the highest male youth suicide rates in the world. And look where we live. We live in a beautiful country. Yeah. Is that trend still the same? Was it going up? Is it going yeah, down? No, well, look, what it, are we seeing? Look, Shane, it is, it is about the same. And without you know, putting a, a dampener on the on the podcast, the reality is today nine people in Australia will die by suicide and seven of those will be blokes. Wow. And um, it's interesting on the back of, you know, obviously the last couple of years with COVID, the, we're watching, you know, with real interest in terms of, um, you know, the stats are one thing, but obviously there are lies behind that. And, you know, the, the research is showing, you know, up to 165 people are impacted by, you know, each mm. suicide and you know there's about 65,000 people that are documented that attempt suicide you know during over a 12 month period as well so we we at lifeline we have a you know a lofty vision of an Australia free of suicide and that's what we're aiming to do be wonderful wouldn't it and and Dr Christy your um your background's obviously in neuroscience um some of the the research that I've read is that tweens and teenagers the the use of Drugs and alcohol is actually declining, but you're seeing a lot of depression actually increasing. Do you think it's due to a lot of the digital exposure they're experiencing? Look, there's a lot of conjecture in the research. Yep. Um, there's definitely ample evidence that tells us there's a strong correlation between mm. poor mental health outcomes and time spent on devices, particularly social media. Yep. But we're not quite sure yet which way the directional arrow points. Is it the right. chicken or the egg? Is it that people with existing mental health issues gravitate towards the online platforms as an avoidance strategy, as a coping mechanism? Or are these platforms instigating, agitating or exacerbating mental health issues? We're not quite sure. What I think is happening, um, and because we, we're going to really struggle to get research. Sure. I mean, are you going to put your kids up for an experimental study where there's a possible risk of harm? No. We're never going to get that empirical no. evidence, I don't mm. think. Okay. So what I think is happening is that technology is certainly contributing. I think it would be naive to suggest that technology is not impacting our mental health and wellbeing, but I don't actually think it's in the direct causal way that we often assume. I think what's happening is that our screen habits, because they've crept into every crevice of our lives, are displacing some of our most basic psychological and physical needs. 
we're more sedentary than we've ever been. Yep. When yep. we move, we make a whole lot of neurochemicals that make us feel good. Mm. We're not sleeping anywhere near as much or getting the good quality of sleep and our screen habits are definitely impacting that. And the most basic need that we share as humans is the need for relational connection. Like when we're in person, when we're with real people, when we're with our mates, our brain produces oxytocin. It's yep. a love hormone. So I think it's the combination of those three factors that we're more sedentary, um, we are not connecting with real people as much, and we're not getting enough sleep. That And technology is certainly shaping all of those. I think that's why we're seeing adverse mental health. And there's a, t- there's a term for that now, isn't it? Is it no- nomophobia, which is the fear of being disconnected altogether from your phone? Legitimately and, not yeah. having our phone in close proximity. Research right. tells us most adults now are usually no longer, no more than one metre proximity away from their phone for most of their waking hours. This is why, please, I'm not going to make eye contact with any of you in the room. I just threw my phone there, across the room. I'm going to do there, the same. There is a condition. Yep. Apparently 47% of us engage in a behaviour called toilet tweeting. That is using our phones in the bathroom. We are so tethered to technology that we can't be without it. Um, Mm. Another condition a lot of people have got is called phantom vibration syndrome. So we get that tingling feeling that our smartwatch or our phone Uh. is vibrating and it's nowhere near our physical body. So I think there's ample evidence at this point in time to suggest technology is having a huge impact on all of us, but it's not going away. It's not going to become mm. uninvented. So we have to learn how to use it yeah, and live with it. it. Yeah. Totally. And Cole, so just for, for those who, everyone's heard of Lifeline, but I don't think a lot of people understand exactly what the organisation does. So so in yeah. layman's terms, there's obviously a number you can call, but but what sits behind that? Yeah, so look, Lifeline is a, is a membership-based organisation. So we have, um, people are aware, Shane, as you mentioned about, I think the the voice services and digital services, but we have 60 centres all around the country. Right. Um, so we have 11,000 staff and volunteers around the country, and a lot of the work is actually on the ground. So, you know, a number of years ago it was drought. We've got people now, you know, meetings this morning are about what's happening with the flood victims yes. and how do we support uh, that as well. So I guess if you break our lifeline into two key components, it's, it's Lifeline Digital, um, which is, you know, how do people get to us in the yep. most effective way? And we're talking about youth and so we've had to move with the times in terms of channels to get that, but also Lifeline Community, so work on the ground. So, I mean, we, we're just so blessed with the, you know, the volunteers we have. Uh, you know, we, we literally couldn't do it with because the, um, you know, I think it was pretty well documented on the back of COVID and, um, and even looking at the stats this weekend with the floods, et cetera, we're, we're having demand. We've, we've never seen in the 60-year history of so life roof, is it? Oh, look, look it's um, – I mean, just quickly. So how many calls a day would that be roughly? <clears throat> yeah, so say say pre the bushfires in, in 2019, on the, on the core telephone service, we get about 2,400 calls a day. And then during COVID, it went up to 3,600. And then I think a really fascinating sort of message, New Year's Day this year, we had 3,726 calls, which is in a day, which, you know, was a bit like the community going, you know, Happy New Year, you're kidding. You know, we were still, COVID was still up and up and down, et cetera. What we're finding is, again, on the weekend, um, with our SMS and, and phones, you know, on Sunday, we had over 4,000 contacts for the day. And so... Th- I think the community's sort of on edge generally. I don't know whether you're finding that, but it, and so, it doesn't yeah. take much. It's interesting on, on, on New Year's Day. So is that a factor, you think, of people 
probably celebrating too much over Christmas and coming down from whatever they've been doing or drinking or taking? Or do you think it's they don't have a New Year's resolution per se to, to look forward to something? Yeah, look, I think in a very – and this is a, a yeah. non-scientific yeah. view. Well, look, for a start, the, the festive season for a lot of people isn't that festive. Right. You know, I, I mean, often over Christmas, et cetera um, – we're not all fortunate enough to be, yes, be you know, Christy yep. lunch with our families mm. and et cetera, and a lot of memories come up. But uh, I guess perhaps an uneducated view was, you know, hey, Happy New Year. Well, you know, it's like, you're kidding. You know, we're still here. We, we thought we were going to be out of all this stuff. Um, as, as I said, you know, there were certain events around the world. You know, we've had the Ukraine war situation I mean, you know, these things are actually impacting on the on the back of people's minds. Yeah, and you, know, you turn on the news, it's never positive, is it? It's almost better not to listen, listen to the news. Um, so I want to um, go back to a point you made before about um, you mentioned that people's sleep patterns are changing. And I, I was listening to a podcast you're on with Andrew May from Strive Stronger, and he was, he was saying there that um, even people's breathing has changed and um, that you sigh to almost get rid of stress. But when you're on screen, that changes. It does. Do you want to explain that? So back to the sleep issue, one in five Australians are being woken up each night because of alerts and notifications. So once we're woken up, regardless of where we are in our sleep mm. cycle, we go back to the beginning of our sleep. So not only are many of us not getting the right volume of sleep because it takes us longer to fall asleep because we're doom scrolling before we go to bed or triaging yep. our inboxes, that delays the onset of sleep. We also know the blue light shrinks our deep sleep state. So the restorative part of our sleep cycle is shortened. This if is you wear important. a fitness tracker, absolutely. Yeah. That's when memory consolidation occurs. Um, a lot of repairs in our body occur. So a lot of us are not only getting not getting sufficient amounts of sleep, we're getting really poor quality of sleep. Um, and we know this was really pronounced in the pandemic. A lot of people said, look, I was actually getting the same volume of sleep, but I've never been more exhausted. And we can certainly blame some of that on psychological stress um, you know, spending hours a day on Zoom or Teams calls. Yep. Um, but what we also think was happening, it was many people were spending preponderance of their hour, waking hours on a screen. Research tells us the average adult spent an average of 13.28 hours a day on digital devices in the height of the pandemic. A day. A day. A day. So the blue light exposure, coupled with when we were in really harsh lockdowns and you were, you know, strictly prohibited from being outside, a lot of people didn't get that natural sunlight. So we know that resets our circadian rhythm. So your point on our breathing, there is a condition, I don't know if any of you in the room suffer from it, called email apnea. When we go in our inboxes, we hold our breath, we dump a whole lot of cortisol, our heart rate accelerates, our pupils dilate, we have a physiological response. So when it comes to our screens, because we are staring at a very small surface area, mm -hmm. be that a laptop, a tablet, yep. a phone, our biological mechanism is that when we have a very narrow gaze, we're in a heightened stress state. So years gone by, we had to really laser in when there was a potential threat, so we shut off our peripheral vision. We are designed as humans not for narrow gaze. We are biologically designed for a dilated gaze. Yeah. We are designed to look out at the, the, the view. And so when we're on a screen, because our brain thinks we're in this heightened state, we breathe in totally different ways. So as humans, we should sigh. We do it naturally. We're unaware that we're doing it roughly every five minutes. So it's just a, and I'm not talking about the melodramatic teenage sigh, you know, the, <laughs> where everybody knows they're sighing. You know that sigh? Yes. Um, this is just two inhalations through the nose and an exhalation through the mouth. And we do it to regulate our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Right. 
But when we're on a screen, our sigh rate just falls off the cliff. We stop sighing. What does this tell us? We're in an elevated stress state. Now, you think about the number of hours. Maybe we're not at 13 hours a day, but many of us would be close to that mm. still. We are in a narrow gaze and we're breathing in totally different ways. It's sending a stress response to our bodies. So I call this techno stress. And I think it's, as I said, it's crept into every crevice of our lives. We've got to go back to how can we use technology, but use it in ways that is congruent with how we are designed, what I call our human operating system, our HOS. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think um, you're dead right that and a lot of us don't know what the signs are. Mm. Um, and that comes back to my next question to you, Colin. Like if, if someone's feeling down and they feel that they're having suicidal thoughts, uh, what, what, are the, what are the key markers or, or key identifiers that they well, should, people well, should look out for, not only for themselves but for, for loved ones? Yeah, look, fundamentally change of, change of behaviour. You know, those you can have people that were you know, colleagues that you would catch up regularly, all of a sudden they become isolated. Yeah. Um, you see they're, they're, not, they're not doing the physical activity, they're not getting outside, they're, they're just staying in their world. Um, you know things are happening in their lives. I mean, I think a, a lot of people, you're not out of those 3,600 calls that were coming through a day, not every call was someone at that point of crisis, okay. but the, a lot of them are relationship issues, financial issues, cost of living gotcha. issues. So I think it's a matter of knowing what's going on with you, your colleagues. And, and, and I think, Shane, it's a bit of a misconception that you actually ask the question. You can ask the question. Are you, are you actually feeling suicidal? A lot of people dodge I think the it's question. Taboo, yeah. yeah, but it's actually not. And it can be a bit of a circuit breaker. Again, if, if we're able to, you know, large part of our role is to intervene in, in a moment in time and then to talk about a plan moving forward. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's identifying your friends, family, changes in behaviour, know what's going on in their life and ask them the, the fair income question. It's, it's very confronting for a parent, I'm assuming, like to look at that. And, and kids often will have what they call bad thoughts, but that doesn't necessarily mean having suicidal thoughts. Yeah, and it's that, and again, it's that, um, but, but it's a continuum. So mm. that, that, you know, that prevention side is a lot of what we do, fundamentally, you know, a huge part of what we do, not, and obviously, you know, tragically we deal at that really crisis support end, but, but our aim is, is not to get there for people, yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break today. Today, we're in City. We're at 200 George Street, level 32. We're at the Work Club. Where our offices are based, actually. We're going to have some lunch here today. Fantastic bar and menu here as well. So I'm going to have, I'm going to try and be healthy today. I'm going to have the um, poached chicken salad. Of course, I'll have an O'Brien beer with it, so I'm not going to be too healthy. We might have a little glass of Chardonnay as well with that. Yeah, let's get started on that. In life, the most important thing is trust. Without it, everything is a lot harder in a quickly changing and turbulent time. Barclay Pierce Capital is a safe pair of hands, an organisation built on people. They understand you've worked hard to build your nest egg and their asset management business is tailored to suit your needs. Their services help grow your wealth in order to provide long-term safety and security for you and your family. BPC, just a phone call away. 
If you're ready for your next thoroughbred racing adventure, then join the Osher Group. They exceed expectations on what racehorse ownership should look like. Australia's racing industry is enjoying unprecedented growth. Through a strategic, well-managed and data-driven approach, there is now a very real opportunity to build a profitable and sustainable thoroughbred portfolio. Find the Osher Group online at theoshergroup.com. And Chris, you wrote um, a fantastic book, Raising a Child in the Digital World. What was your inspiration behind that and, and, and what, what, are the, what are the key takeouts do you think? I know it's a, it's a decent read, so, but what are the key points do you think if someone was to read that book? Yeah, I wrote that book because when I had my first son, and this is not how I date his chronological age, but it's important for this story, he was born <laughs> six months after the first iPad came out. Right. So I went to my child health care clinic nurse for the six-month developmental check and she asked all the regular questions. Yep. Was he having tummy time? Had he started solids? And then she turned and asked me what screen time he was having. And he was you know, six months at the time, I said, well, nothing. She did that and wagged her finger at me and I looked at her and she said, oh, you really should be um, getting him on an iPad. He should be learning colours, shapes and letters on the iPad. He should be having baby Einstein DVDs every day. And I almost fell off my chair. (laughs) I knew as a researcher this wasn't what we knew kids needed Mm. for optimal development. So I thought I went home and I did two things. One... I put the baby down for a nap and he did one of those four-hour anomaly naps where you go in and check that they're breathing and commando crawl out and four hours went by and I did two things. The first thing I did was I started, ironically, a social media campaign that babies need laps, not apps. It went viral and I shared my experience. The second thing I thought, I'm going to write a book about this topic because I knew as a researcher I had access. I was in a privileged position where I knew what the research and science was telling us, but I knew allied health professionals, parents weren't getting this research-based information. So I thought I'm going to write a book where I can be the conduit behind the research but give people really pragmatic solutions. So when I talk to parents, I say, you've got to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And to be the pilot or co-pilot, you've got to get three Bs right. You've got to establish boundaries with your kids and screen ages yep. on their tech habits. So, And I think we need to have more nuanced conversations. There's so much of an obsession around how much time they're spending online. Mm-hmm. Definitely important, but it shouldn't be our only metric. Okay. So boundaries, and we have to co-establish. I call these our family digital guardrails. We have mm-hmm. to come up with parameters around where, when, how, with yep. whom, and how long they use devices. The second B is that we have to make sure that we fiercely protect their basic needs, physical and psychological needs. Mm-hmm. Are their tech habits encroaching on their sleep? their movement, their connection. Are they getting enough sunlight? We have done a student digital wellbeing assessment with nearly 40,000 children and teens across Australia. One of the many questions we asked in this survey is, are you getting 90 minutes of sunlight exposure a day? Over 80% of adolescents are saying no. Yeah, they worry about skin cancer. Well, well, they're inside <laughs> yeah. on their devices too. Yeah, that's true. Um, so that is really rudimentary, not only for their sleep, um, but we also know that can help prevent myopia, which is nearsightedness. And we've seen a massive uptake in myopia rates with children, adolescents and um, uh, teens. And what we often point the finger is at the screens – We actually don't think that's the main reason. We think it's that they're not getting enough natural sunlight. We're not sure what the mechanism is that when we're out in the sun, is it the vitamin D that elongates our myopic nerve? That's one theory. But another plausible theory is that when we're outside, we look at things further away. You know, the ball that's flying towards us or the the car that's in the distance making a big noise. So basic needs is the second one. And the third one is we have to get our kids accustomed to being bored. 
we have to be so careful about always self-soothing with a screen because this is what a lot of adults are doing. I'm angry and I go on social media. And because we have a negativity bias, we're more likely to click on, Mm. you know, the, the doom headline or the negative story. And this can have a really negative impact. So we've got to be okay with being idle with our thoughts. I totally agree. I always say to my kids, um, only bored people get bored. (laughs) Look, it's true, but but a lot of parents are both working. um, It's flat out. Um, It gets to a point where you just need a minute to do something and it's easy to get kids to go on the iPad. And I get that. It's it's not easy, but you have to, yeah, definitely get screens out of their rooms by a certain time every night and, and only, I think, manage it. But... Getting outside and being physical, it's what we did growing up. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of good in that. Now, um, Cole, I want to ask you, you spent some time at the Swans. And yep. um, and for me, as a former professional cricketer, I've seen a lot of my mates go through some pretty tough times once the once the end of the career stops and, and the lights get turned off. Um, are you seeing a trend in that as well, like from your time with the Swans and with professional athletes? Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's, I mean... Um, you know, Lifeline. Fortunately, we have a we have a, a relationship with the AFL. Mm. Um, you know, as a charity partner, but we're also um, working. They've set up a whole um, uh, department there in terms of um, mental health and well-being. So, for two two aspects: one, the elite athletes, but yep. also um, the community as well. So, you know, I mentioned we have centres out out in in regional areas and and uh, Broken Hill. A couple of years ago, tragically, a bit like your mates, there were mm. you know, three or four suicides in that area. So they've now got a How's Your Mate round, which is really shining a light on suicide. But, um, yeah, there's a number of, of organisations that are being getting set up. There's a group called Fifth Quarter down in okay. Victoria, um, some ex-AFL players, a bit aligned to some of the concussion discussions, mm. you know, what's happening post there. But I'm sure, Shane, you and or number of your mates along the journey it's like what, what do we do now so I think it is at the elite level it's getting better you know I, I think one of the big breakthroughs like in the day um, I'm sure when, when you played and when I was trying to get a kick um, you you would never say you've got mental health challenges. it would nah, never be but nah. you actually see in the in the you know the team lineups in the AFL um, so-and-so's out for uh, mental health reasons or a break and it's like that stigma is just getting broken down. And one of our ambassadors, a young bloke, Tom Boyd, who played and played up in Sydney for the Giants and then went to the Bulldogs and um, pretty much won the game against the Swans in the 2016 Grand Final. <laughs> but Tom gave it away, you know, at 23 um, and is now, you know, spreading the word. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but at least it's on the agenda. And, and that stigma stuff, again, back in the day, you would never – put your hand up and you would never say that someone is having a mental health break. So I think we're getting there. And thank goodness too because, um, yeah, back in the day, they'd, well, they'd say on one hand, he's a really mentally tough cricketer or a footballer, really mentally tough. But then they're saying if, if something's wrong or toughen up, you know, like, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's big about that. That's not it was, you know, it man, was, man up, like the least yeah, it was silly the suck terms. it up princess stuff, yeah. you know, which and, and we've moved on, which is great. Um, but there's still, there's still a number of ex- you know, professional athletes. I'm sure you're you're aware mm. that um, there's some ongoing challenges. Well, yeah. there's a number of issues with that too, because um, just because they're a professional athlete doesn't mean they're good at anything else. <laughs> like you can just be good at sport, yeah. and it's hard to know what to do, and it's hard to 
realised you've got to start from scratch again and how do I get that recognition? It made me feel good when yeah. I went up performed and, and when people stopped patting you on the back and the, and and the, the checks start, stopped rolling Yeah, the in, financial yeah, situation really changes, you, you know, the adoration. So it is, a, and it is incumbent upon the organisations to prepare people for it. Stay with us because we'll be back after this short break. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need this spring is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. If you're enjoying this episode, maybe check out a previous one where I spoke to Mark Coyne, the rugby league player, Kirk Pengilly from InXS, and Colin Keating, where we spoke about all things footy, music, and psychedelics. And Christy, I just want to get your understanding around the chemical reactions that kids are having on screen time. Is, is it what, what research is done into that? So do they know it's exactly a, a chemical imbalance, or, or how would you describe it? So I have to admit the research is still in its infancy yep, okay. and to get experimental studies where we, you know, put kids in fMRI machines, really yep. hard to get. But yep. what we know in terms of how, you know, the brain mechanics is that one of the reasons why kids throw techno tantrums, I don't know if your kids have ever thrown a techno tantrum, <laughs> yep, but yep, yep. for those of you who are thinking, what's that? This is when you're really otherwise emotionally well-adjusted child or teenager, it combusts when you pry the gaming console or the phone out of their hands. Mm -hmm. And one of the many reasons is that we know that when we're on a screen, our brain releases dopamine because usually it's it's fun, it's yep. easy, it requires very little cognitive effort. Mm -hmm. um, so believe it or not, watching YouTube clips of other people playing video games is meant to be really pleasurable for our kids or watching makeup tutorials. So their brain releases the neurotransmitter dopamine and dopamine not only makes them want more of it, but we also know dopamine floods their prefrontal cortex. So the part of the brain that's like the CEO of the brain, the yep. air traffic control system, the, it's the self-regulation centre of the brain. It doesn't work. Well, it's, firstly, it's not fully developed. The prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until somewhere in their 20s. Later for males, yeah. earlier <laughs> somewhat for females. <laughs> yeah. I often ask in, in audiences and I say, what's the age when the male prefrontal cortex is fully developed and without fail? <laughs> no, it's often the dad in the back of the room saying, never. <laughs> <laughs> but research tells us hopefully it does fully develop, but they don't. This is the part of the brain that self regulates. So it is a, a biological impossibility to give kids a device that, firstly, is really fun because when they're getting that hit of dopamine, it turns off that part of their brain. It's not fully formed anyway. So it is a, a biological impossibility for a child mm. to be spending four hours on Fortnite, voluntarily turn it off and say, I'm going to set the dinner table for you, Dad. Like it just won't, they don't have that impulse control center fully developed. So that's one of the changes. We know when we're with real people, I mentioned before that neurochemical oxytocin, mm -hmm. 
people often say, but I'm connecting, I'm chatting with my friends, or I'm on a multiplayer game with my mates. The research tells us that text-based or digital-based connection is okay, but it doesn't give us the same levels of oxytocin and it doesn't drop our cortisol levels uh-huh. like we do when we're right. in like close physical proximity with real yeah. people. So there's makes, a whole lot yeah, makes happening. Makes a lot of sense too, doesn't it really? Yeah, and the brain's got something. One of the big issues that I, I think is happening, and this touches on why we're seeing I think a lot more mental health diagnoses mm. in young people, is firstly we're talking about it a lot yep. more. We've got clearer diagnostic criteria, but a lot of young people are talking and sharing their lived experience online. So we're calling this the social contagion effect. And because the brain has something in it called mirror neurons, so mirror neurons mean we are biologically designed to copy imitate. I don't know, my kids always copy my partner's worst habits and traits, never mind. Um, But when they're online and they're seeing their peers talking about their depression or talking about their anxiety or talking about their attentional issues, what we're actually seeing is because our brains are primed to copy, this contagion effect can happen. So I'm not suggesting that that mental health issues aren't important, but often we're seeing this contagion effect occurring and driving up perhaps behaviours that we wouldn't ordinarily see because they're spending so much time on their devices. Uh, scary. It's a scary world we live in. Uh, I ask everyone the same question on the show. I'll ask you first, Colin. Um, uh, what advice would you give? Um, particularly, I'll, I'm going to change this slightly with yourself, but um, if someone wants to get involved with Lifeline as a volunteer, how do they go about that? And what advice would you give them to to become part of what I think is a fantastic movement? Yeah, look, it's, it's as... Simple Shane is going to lifeline.org.au yep. um, and there's the nomination there. But I think for the whole to be involved in an organisation at Lifeline, not only as a volunteer, we obviously have um, you know corporate roles and yep. paid roles yep. throughout um, the organisation. It was interesting um, when I started CEO, the, the chairman was a, a guy, John Brogdon, uh, who yes. had lived experience and yes. living experience himself. And he asked me, a really interesting question. He basically asked about how's your own mental health, not from an mm-hmm. employee point of view. You obviously can't do that, but more about some of the stories and the things that you're going to witness uh, are going to be quite hectic. Um, and you just need to be able to – you just to need to understand it. that and yeah. deal with that. And I, I thought at the time, oh, that's really interesting. But obviously in my role, the correspondence, both positive and sometimes challenging that come across the deck desk is interesting but for, for people to volunteer look if you if you speak to our volunteers you know and a lot of the correspondence I get is from them is best thing they've ever done yeah. purpose you know reason and I think we see ourselves I guess more in the behind the scenes side of things um, so fortunate to be in a role where you don't You're have helping. to you don't well you don't have to ask what the purpose is you don't have yeah. People don't have a problem getting out of bed and coming to Lifeline. Um, so that that would just be the advice if you if you if you think you want to contribute to society, um, you've you've had some life experiences. No, put we'll your see. hand up. Yeah. And Dr. Christie, if a young boy or girl wants to go into neuroscience, what advice would you give them? Oh, go for it. Go I, for it yeah. I think that like. We can't outperform our neurobiology. We have mm-hmm. this almost a biological blueprint that we have to adhere to. So, we, you know, we upgrade our software all the time on our phones. Why would we not understand yeah, how true. we can upgrade like the most yeah. basic mechanism? So that's why I think understanding how your brain and body works will set you up for life, Where you know, whatever career path you take, um, it really is our HOS. 
Well, for those listening, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. Um, for those parents out there, go and check out some of Christy's stuff because the work you're doing is, is unbelievable. Mm. It's ever-evolving. Um, and um, I think we're all in the same boat. You've got three boys. I've got three kids myself. And, um, screen ages. Screen ages, yes. <laughs> and, and, Kyle, the work you're doing, um, the number, Lifeline, is 131114. Um, as you said, Get on there, make the call, um, you can bounce any idea off them. We, we listen without judgment. Without judgment. And, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, a problem shared is a problem halved, as they say. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. That's it for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Colin Seary and Dr. Christy Goodwin. Thanks to our sponsors, Barclay Pierce Capital, Elite Bet and O'Brien Beer. Make sure you hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Do us a favour, hit five stars, and if you're passionate, please leave a review. And come check us out on Instagram, I'm at Lunch With Lee. And a big thank you once again to our producer, Dan McHugh. We'll be back next time with some more legends to talk about sport, music, and business on another cracking episode of Lunch With Lee. We'll see you then. Do-